You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I am proud to say that the show is Harry Potter-free this month. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Michael Makovsky about Winston Churchill's views on Zionism. It was a pivotal moment in, his, in the evolution of Churchill's thought about Zionism. Uh, before his trip, Zionism and Palestine were basically abstract ideas. He knew about them, he spoke about them a bit, but he didn't fully understand them. Uh, but when he visited Palestine in 1921 and he met Palestinian Arabs and he met Palestinian Jews. He really formed opinions of both groups that really lasted the rest of his life. Tenet Bagley about the controversy surrounding a KGB defector in the early 1960s. But actually the case goes far deeper and wider than the simple question of whether this one man was or was not a genuine defector. What's more important is the signs in this case that our enemy in the Cold War has succeeded in breaking American secret codes, and that it had moles inside American intelligence services, and that it was deceiving us about these things. And Emily Cockaine about urban nuisances English men and women suffered in the 17th and 18th centuries. Pegs probably take, have the edge because they were more generally annoying. They were present in surprising numbers in the streets, even in London. And, and they would get in, their, in your way, and they would also rootle their, their filthy snouts through dunghills and then move on to the grain snacks and the sacks in the market. So they, um, they were quite messy, and they would make a mess. They would also occasionally push their bodies and noses through structures and walls and undermine walls and go through into people's houses. Stay tuned. The founding of Israel in 1948 was one of the 20th century's most significant political acts. In Churchill's Promised Land, Zionism and Statecraft, Michael McCoskey looks at how one of the 20th century's most significant political actors, Winston Churchill, viewed the movement towards a Jewish homeland. Michael McCoskey is the Foreign Policy Director at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Michael McCoskey, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Winston Churchill is one of the most written-about figures of the 20th century. What was it about this topic that interested you enough to write this book? Well... Uh, most books about Churchill are biographical or focus on his politics, but there are a lot fewer books that focus on Churchill's uh, diplomatic views and ideas and efforts and certainly his world view. And those books that do focus on Churchill as a statesman or diplomat tend to focus on how he approached great strategic issues or imperial subjects like Nazi Germany or India. And uh, those were very important parts of Churchill. He, he was a he focused on strategic issues, he cared about imperial subjects, but if you just focus on that part of, uh, of Churchill, then you really miss the, the whole Churchill. And uh, so what I did, I tried to focus on a subject, uh, Zionism, uh, which was a political movement to recreate a Jewish state in the Holy Land, or Palestine it was then called. Um, so uh, I looked at that subject, because how Churchill looked at Zionism, because it was for him a non-strategic, non-imperial, sentimental world issue that still mattered a great deal for him. So 
I thought by looking at how Churchill uh, approached that issue and thought about Zionism, which he really did in many ways over the course of his whole career, that that would be a way to better understand Churchill. Overall, I think it's fair to say that Churchill comes across in the book as fairly sympathetic to Zionism and Jewish causes. What were some of the early influences in his life that allowed him to embrace Jewish concerns? Well, his probably the most important one was his father, uh, Randolph Churchill. His father was a uh, loom for Churchill's a larger-than-life figure. Uh, the father uh, never really cared that much about Churchill or showed a lot of affection for him, but his whole life, and he died at he, when Churchill was young, but uh, Churchill really sought his respect and approbation his whole life, uh, Churchill's whole life, even way after his father had died in a way. Uh, but psychologically, he really sought out to, um, uh, you know, to emulate his father in many ways and follow some of his father's views. He memorized a lot, almost all, he tried to memorize a lot of his father's speeches in Parliament. His father was a very prominent politician who had a meteoric rise and then fall. And, uh, and one of the interesting aspects of his father was uh, that his father was philo-Semitic. His father generally liked Jews. His father had a lot of wealthy Jewish fan, uh, friends. And uh, his father also looked up to Benjamin Disraeli, the Jewish-born prime minister of, of England in the 19th century, was was twice prime minister. He converted to Christianity, but he was often seen still as a Jew. And his father imbibed a lot of Disraeli's views about Jews, which Disraeli did talk about a lot in his speeches and in his novels. And Churchill, in turn, imbibed a lot of the views of, of his father Randolph. So uh, Churchill was also, um, a lot of his father's friends became Churchill's friends. Uh, I mean, his, Jewish, uh, his father's Jewish friends became uh, Churchill's friends. And also, Churchill was also influenced by um, some of the views of various English writers and theologians of the late 19th century. Finally, I would say that he, he encountered Jews uh, when he was early in his career. He represented Northwest Manchester, which had a sizable Jewish electorate. And uh, so he, he had to encounter Jews for political reasons. So, and he came away from the experience generally positively. So those had a lot of influences on the way he looked at Jews. How different was he from his peers and how he viewed Jews? Well, his father... His father distinguished himself in his more favorable attitudes toward Jews uh, than his uh, relatives had in uh, many other of the aristocratic class, which generally did not favor Jews. Uh, and Churchill himself certainly stood out, I would say, both in the political establishment and in the country at large of having a more favorable attitude towards Jews. And certainly over time, as Churchill aged as a politician, uh, he, he stood out for... Uh, uh, certainly with the, compared to many in the conservative party as having a more favorable attitude toward Jews and uh, Zionism. You write about how Churchill's views on Zionism were often influenced by other political concerns, and particularly after 1917, Bolshevism. How did the Russian Revolution affect Churchill's views on Zionism? I'd say that it, if the Bolshevik Revolution affected Churchill in two ways towards Zionism. Uh, the first way was strategic. Uh, he, was con he was obsessed with the Russian Revolution, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. He saw the Bolsheviks as a threat to Western civilization. It defined how he looked at the world at the end of World War I and after uh, in the 1920s. Uh, and 
one of the ways that manifested was that he, to counter uh, the Bolshevik government, he sought to maintain the Ottoman Empire. Now it was Turkey and other territories. Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire. So to maintain the Ottoman Empire as a counterbalance to the Russians, at the Bolshevik Russians, essentially meant implicitly that you you wouldn't have a Jewish homeland in Palestine because it would remain as part of the Ottoman Empire. So in that way, it, effect, it, it, it had a negative impact on how we viewed Zionism. Secondly, uh, more and, and less directly, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution affected the way he looked at Jews at the end of uh, World War I and for until uh, about uh, the early 1920s. Uh, many on the political right in England saw the Bolsheviks as Jews. And... Uh, for the first time, and really the only time in Churchill's life, he didn't know how to look at Jews on the world stage. He had a more uh, apprehensive attitude towards them. Uh, because, again, he, uh, he shared that equation a bit, that the Bolsheviks were Jews. So now the Jews, there were at least a group of Jews in Russia that posed a threat uh, to world stability. And... Uh, he, he, he felt that way somewhat. He still was favorable to Jews, but now he looked at them a bit more warily. So indirectly, it made him a little more wary of Jews and Jewish causes, at least for a couple of years. In 1921, Churchill visited Palestine. How did that affect or change his views on the Zionist question? It was a pivotal moment in, his, in the evolution of Churchill's thought about Zionism. Uh, before his trip, Zionism and Palestine were basically abstract ideas. He knew about them, he spoke about them a bit, but he didn't fully understand them. Uh, but when he visited Palestine in 1921, and he met Palestinian Arabs, and he met Palestinian Jews, he really formed opinions of both groups that really lasted the rest of his life. He, he came to see the Palestinian Jews and what they had done to the land and turning desert areas into orchards and uh, and uh, and the like, and uh, he saw them as the Palestinian Jews as really fellow agents in the advance of uh, civilization. He saw them in many ways like he saw the British, and uh, he re- he referred to his his 1921 trip, uh, particularly to his visit of an early Jewish settlement called Rishon LeZion. He referred to that for really the rest of his life. On the other hand, he, he never was very favorable towards Arabs from his encounters with them and uh, when he fought in uh, wars in Africa, in the Sudan, in the late 19th century. But his encounters with the Palestinian Arabs, who were anti-Zionist, they did not, they opposed the emergence of a Jewish state in, in where they were living. Uh, he had a very negative view from his encounters with the Palestinian Arabs, and he never really changed that either for the rest of his life. So it was a pivotal moment for him. Churchill's Promised Land, Zionism and Statecraft, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Michael Makovsky, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. In 1964, Yuri Nosenko, a KGB officer, defected from the Soviet Union with information about Lee Harvey Oswald's life in the Soviet Union. But what initially was thought to be a coup for the CIA has since become one of the most mysterious and controversial chapters in Cold War espionage. In his book, Spy Wars, Mole's Mysteries and Deadly Games, 
Lieutenant Bagley, who was director of CIA operations against the KGB at the time of the Nosenka defection, writes about the inconsistencies and puzzles that remain unanswered. Tenant Bagley served in the CIA for 22 years and is currently a writer and researcher in Brussels. Tenant Bagley, thanks so much for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. The main narrative of the book, Spy Wars, Moles, Mysteries, and Deadly Games, outlines the defection of KGB officer Yuri Nosenko in the early 1960s. What was your job with the CIA during the time you were debriefing him? Uh, well, by a fantastic coincidence, actually, it was two successive jobs that put me at the very center of this affair. Um, first, I happened to be stationed in Switzerland at the time Nosenko came there in the spring of 62 with a Soviet delegation to a it was an arms control conference. Um, and just before he and his delegation returned to Russia, he asked for a contact with CIA, and I met him and became his handling officer. But then, by chance, I'd he went back to Russia, and then by chance, I'd already been scheduled to transfer later that year to Langley headquarters to supervise CIA's worldwide efforts to counter Soviet intelligence. And so when Nosenko came west again in early 1964, again to Geneva, I went out from Langley to meet him there, and this time he defected and was brought to the United States. Um, and there, my headquarters job made me primarily responsible for him. For the next three years, I was, uh, I was in that job until... I was assigned abroad again in early 1967. The book lays out a lot of different threads in this story, so many that I don't think they can be rendered in the time that we have. But could you give listeners kind of a quick overview of the Nosenka defection? Well, yes, uh, I'd like to. Uh, And by the way, not just as background, but also because the case has been tremendously misinterpreted in some public accounts. Um, At the center of the case, in the center of my book, is uh, the defection of this KGB officer, Yuri Nosenko, to CIA, and the different ways the American intelligence community reacted to it. But actually, the case goes far deeper and wider than the simple question of whether this one man was or was not a genuine defector. What's more important is the signs in this case that our enemy in the Cold War has succeeded in breaking American secret codes and that it had moles inside American intelligence services, and that it was deceiving us about these things. In the narrow sense, the case began when Nosenko came to Geneva in 1962, and then in 1964 when he defected to the United States. Uh, At just that time, that was when the U.S. was grieving the death by assassination of its president, President Kennedy, only a few weeks earlier and wondering about the fact that the assassin had uh, defected to the Soviet Union, had lived there for three years, and then changed his mind and returned to the U.S. with a Soviet wife. Then a year later, he killed the president. Might the Soviets have been behind the killing? Now, just at that point, out comes from Moscow our spy, Yuri Nosenko, professing to know all about Oswald's defection to the USSR and his three-year stay there. In fact, uh, Nosenko, our one source inside the KGB, claimed no, to have had no fewer than four personal contacts with Oswald's case. He'd even studied the KGB file itself. He, so, so he was able to certify with authority that neither the K- 
KGB nor any other Soviet service had ever had the slightest interest in Oswald in the USSR. They hadn't even questioned him. And this, um, thus, for that reason, of course, the Soviets couldn't have had a hand in the assassination. In the U.S., uh, Nosenko was received like any other defector but for the first couple of months. He didn't have any particularly important things to report, but that didn't worry us. What did worry us, though, was while questioning him, we were seeing a lot of things, a lot of reasons to believe he was lying. He contradicted himself again and again. He changed his stories about his life and his KGB career and other things. And he told many things we knew were not true. So we had to ask ourselves, might the KGB have sent us this man to pass this message about Oswald? maybe even to hide a Soviet hand in the assassination. And as I've mentioned, there were signs that he was hiding other important things, too, like KGB recruitment of American code clerks. Now think about that, about that code clerk bit. At this point, the Cold War, the Cold War was always threatening to turn hot. This was right after the Berlin crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our enemy... If they had succeeded in breaking our ciphers, had been given a war-winning capability. So we had to try to find out whether or, and then why. But to do that, we had to confront him with our points of doubt and see whether, whether or how he could explain them. The Oswald matter was just one of many, I, I stressed. But if we confronted him openly, I think it would know about our doubts and which we'd hidden from him. He, he could simply walk out the door, and we'd lose any further chance to get at the truth. So with the authority of the Attorney General of the United States, we put him under guard for the time we needed to confront him. You know, at the time, we thought that would last maybe a couple of weeks. But when confronted with his own contradictions and with our facts, Nosenko couldn't explain any of them. Instead, his responses made it even more likely that he'd been sent by the KGB. We couldn't get, get him to confess. There was no way to force him. We, he was never tortured. We, we never had any, any such thing, regardless of what uh, fiction books and this movie, The Good Shepherd, or anyone else says. We couldn't pressure him. We, uh, we couldn't touch him. We never touched him or abused him. He was never tortured. But we just kept at the questioning, getting only minor confessions from him, but getting important support for our suspicions. Finally, all this turned into weeks and weeks into months and even years, and our time ran out. Of course, he had to be released. It was a stalemate. After I left headquarters for a new field assignment, CIA whitewashed him with a re-examination and a, a report that made a feeble, transparent effort to make him look acceptable. What else could it do? But then, astonishingly, Nosenko, uh, excuse me, the CIA came to believe in its own whitewash. Nosenko gained some ferocious adherence inside the agency who believed in him for some reason. They took him in as a consultant, and he's been their hero now for 40 years. They say he helped CIA's operations during that time, too. Now, to justify this course, CIA had to bury the truth about the case. All the real reasons to think that Nosenko was sent by the KGB as a plant. 
they buried it under a whole new false history. It was a myth based on lies, lies about how and why our doubts had arisen, about what Nosenko reported and didn't report, even about the circumstances and events of the case. Now I've written this book to restore the truth. Either I'd do it or no one would. I'm probably the only person alive who remembers all the buried facts. Without my book, the truth would have stayed buried and been forgotten forever. A number of traitors hidden by Nosenko's case would go unrecognized and unpunished. Fiction would finally take the place of historical fact. Spy Wars, Moles, Mysteries, and Deadly Games is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Tenant Bagley, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Uh, to live in England in the 17th and 18th centuries. Cultural giants such as Pepys, Pope, Wren, Milton. Events such as the Civil War, the Great Fire, the Glorious Revolution. And then there was the stench, the noise, and the constant assault on the senses that occurred in urban life. In her new book, Hubbub, Filth, Noise, and Stench in England, 1600 to 1770, Emily Cockaine describes the full nature of this sensory assault and what the civil authorities eventually did about it. Emily Cockaine is a research assistant at the Open University in the East Midlands, UK. Dr. Emily Cockaine, thanks for taking some time to talk to Yale University Press today. It's a pleasure. Your book focuses on the urban nuisances that Englishmen and women in the 17th and 18th century faced in four cities— London, Bath, Oxford, and Manchester. Why did you choose these four cities? Well, they, the four cities provide good material that allows me to compare and contrast experiences across the whole country. Uh, one, London, was increasingly industrial, and it was the centre of trade and commerce. And it was quite extraordinary. It was huge. And there were many descriptions of city life from visitors and citizens alike. And it also had many distinct parts to it, particularly the east compared to the west. Now, London was vast in contrast to the other three, uh, both in spa- the space it occupied, because you could fit the three other settlements within it, and also in terms of the numbers of people living in it and passing through it. Uh, comparison is Manchester, which was actually quite small. It was actually a, a small but growing town rather than a city. And Daniel Defoe described it as an open village, which is more populous than most cities in England. He said, it is neither a walled town, city, nor corporation, and it sends no, no members to Parliament. It's also quite interesting to look at early modern Manchester because most research is concerned later periods when it was truly grim and grotty and disgusting with all the mills and factories belching out its smoky, the smoky waste. Now, because of the university, Oxford had a high turnover of men who were apt to describe their city experiences. Um, So whereas people born into a city tend not to notice the features of their city life, people who come to a city, like the undergraduates, the scholars at Oxford, would describe that in their diaries, so they were very, very useful. And the clash between town and gown in Oxford also provided some useful insights into experiences. Bath was an odd, unusual city. Um, Its population ballooned in the summer when rich visitors came to escape London and take the waters. Therefore, letters home are a fruitful source of information about the civic environment. So I have sort of three 
three cities in the south and one settlement in the north, which allows me to explore sort of northern developments in the 18th century. I would have liked to have looked at a seaport too, and I do mention Southampton quite a lot, but not quite enough to elevate it to one of my focus cities. I, I sort of felt I had enough material in the other four settlements. Um, and also each city had great civic records to draw on. So the, I had the council minutes in Oxford and Bath, the Leet records, which are similar in Manchester, and the ward moat records for the parishes in London. So I suppose they were the reasons that I focused on the, on those four settlements. The full title of the book is Hubbub, Filth, Noise, and Stench in England. So what sort of legal remedies were citizens able to use to end these nuisances that they were confronted with? Well, this is a period with no police force, and the local authorities had limited powers. So the opportunities to halt nuisances were quite limited. The law on nuisance wasn't a fixed thing, but the main principle behind it was doing unto others the things that we want to do unto ourselves. So this is obviously quite subjective and shifting, and it's quite difficult to to firm it up in a law, particularly even nowadays when we have things like decibel readers and we can tell how noisy something is. It's quite hard to to craft laws in the early modern period. Um, But there were some places you could go to, some, some, some means of remedy. Um, With some types of nuisance, you could take your case to the local magistrate or the local council or manorial government in in Manchester, for example. These were the nuisances that were common or public nuisances. So a public nuisance had the potential to annoy everybody passing by it. Um, Indictments and misdemeanours were the the way you would commonly... um, commonly go to law against common or public nuisances but but these didn't actually play a significant role against these nuisances in the urban centres I look at because they're quite expensive and additionally the civic authorities had by the early modern period started to establish more simple procedures through things like presentments which is when you were sort of hold to, held to book you were taken into the court and told off Um, bylaws, orders and fines and things like that, the sort of thing you get with local authorities now. And the sort of nuisances that they dealt with were annoying dunghills, wandering pigs, fire hazards, uh, scruffy pavements, um, improper market trading, defective drainage and obstructions on the streets, those sorts of sort of everyday things. Now, the other way to deal with nuisance was by private litigation. So basically, you could sue a nuisance maker in court. And a private nuisance was one that annoyed the individual rather than the public at large. And these included things like stopping up people's windows, stopping rain falling onto your house from another property, um, setting up pigsties near a neighboring house, this sort of nuisance. It could be the subject of private action, and you could hope to recover damages if you went to court. Now, obviously, if the, if the nuisance continued, then you could actually have repeated damages awarded to you, and theoretically, this could continue as long as the defendant could afford to, to stump up the money. So it, there, weren't, there weren't really very many solid legal remedies, and they weren't, um, they weren't all very cheap or easy to come by either. In that answer, uh, you mentioned pigs twice, and uh, pigs show up quite a lot in this book. So could you talk about which were a bigger nuisance to the public, uh, pigs on the streets or dogs on the streets? All right. Well, dogs were more likely to attack pedestrians on the streets 
And they would also be quite annoying because they'd run in packs fighting each other. Now, pigs could get quite frisky, particularly on market day, which seemed to wind them up a bit. But they were less of an immediate threat to, to life and limb. Both pigs and dogs spread diseases, like they both spread intestinal worms through their dung. Uh, dogs also spread rabies, which was not at that time eradicated from England. And contaminated pork from pigs could so cause sicknesses. So it's sort of, sort of unbalanced. Both of them so far are a great public nuisance. But I think pigs probably take, have the edge because they were more generally annoying. They were present in surprising numbers in the streets, even in London. And they sort of got in the way. They were, they, they were said to ramble abroad and do mischief uh, down the streets. And, and they'd get in, their, in your way, and they would also rootle their, their filthy snouts through dunghills and then move on to the grain snacks and the sacks in the market. So they, um, they were quite messy, and they would make a mess. They would also occasionally push their bodies and noses through structures and walls and undermine walls and go through into people's houses. And one particularly adventurous set of pigs climbed onto a dunghill that was stacked against a fence and escaped out of their yard and ran amok on the streets. As the period progresses, you get bigger piggeries on the outskirts <laughs> of the cities. Uh, in one case, in Tottenham Court Road in the 1730s, a pig keeper was taken to court and found guilty of causing a public nuisance. And his nuisance was extreme. Nearby, the householders fell sick and they were deserted by their servants. The value of local houses declined, and it was said that linen was discoloured when it was hung outside, and silver was tarnished. And the, the neighbours of this piggery presented such a horrible, convincing, smelly picture of dangerously odiferous swine that he was um, found guilty on the basis that his pigsty caused infection. So I think on balance that the swine were worse than the curs, although do remember that both had their uses um, dogs as hunters and spit turners and guarders and pigs to consume waste and provide food. Hubbub, Filth, Noise and Stench in England, 1600 to 1770, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Emily Cockaine, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. You know, Yale University Press publishes quite a few books, and currently some of them are on sale, with price reductions up to 50%. Is this madness? Of course not. It's the Yale University Press book sale. Pop on over to www.yalebooks.com and look for the half-off sale banner to the left hand of the page. You know, the 21st century is a wonderful time. And one of the nice things about the 21st century is the advent of social networking. Yale University Press does have a presence on social networking sites. On gather.com, you can find us at yalepress.gather.com. Or if you're on the Enhanced Show, take a look to the link at the lower left. And we are in MySpace, www.myspace.com slash Yale Press. And on the MySpace page, you can learn such interesting things about the press, such as next year is the 100th anniversary of the press. The press apparently is female and is a Taurus, just in case you needed to know. For more information about this show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast catcher, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. 
And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host and current engineer of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.